0: Good morning. Welcome to Earthmakers, Spiritual Care for Real Humans. My name is Joey. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I'm a clinical chaplain and the grateful creator and host of this spiritual care podcast from the Zen Buddhist perspective. Even though this podcast is made through a Buddhist lens, it is for every human, no matter your beliefs or non-beliefs, traditions or practices. Take a deep breath settle in. This space is for you. I can hear the birds outside my window this morning as I'm recording, which is a little odd. creates a little cognitive dissonance for me. Simply because it is negative 11 degrees right now, in the St. Paul, Minnesota area, and with the wind chill, it feels like negative 24 degrees. So, (laughs) here we are. I like that I'm in my cozy little lakeside cabin right now, recording, and although that may sound luxurious to some, I want to make sure I'm very clear about something. Um, Where I grew up in New York... um, There were lots of lakes, and lake country in upstate New York holds on to two different populations, very different populations, the haves and the have-nots. There really wasn't a whole lot of in-between in that area of the country. If you were one of the haves, you probably owned a home or a cottage of some kind. On one of the many Finger Lakes. You probably owned a boat or two, and you probably were able to pay for your kids to go to college. And then there were all of the folks who lived in the hills, the hill country, beyond the lakes. That was me and my family and our neighbors living in rural poverty. Excuse me. Certainly there were some who were worse off than we were, but we still struggled quite a bit and were very poor for a long time. And many of the members of my family of origin, my parents and my siblings and their children, are still quite poor, living in the poverty of rural Appalachia, which is where I grew up. Owning a lakeside cabin in Minnesota feels luxurious to someone who grew up around what we called lake people. Growing up around lake people, going to school with lake people meant that we had a certain disdain. We were taught to have a certain disdain for those who were wealthier than we were. It's easy in a certain sense to have disdain for those who are wealthier than we are. And it's tough because when I bought this cabin, with my spouse. I was filled with, like, some kind of, like, shame or guilt. I was like, you know, should I have a lakeside cabin? And if I do, should I tell my family about it? Because I don't want to create a sense of envy or disdain. I don't want to become one of the lake people. Or do I? Maybe the reason I struggle is because... Or the reason we struggled growing up in poverty was because we actually wanted to be the people that we disdained. We disdained them because we had envy in our hearts. We wanted what they had. And how did they get it? Frankly, most of the haves or the lake people that I grew up around, came by their wealth through honest means. They were born into a wealthy family, which then created more opportunities for them, gave them more resources. And if they were smart enough, many of them would go on to medical school or to law school and get a high-paying job and return to Lake Country, where they would settle down by the lake with their hot spouse and their you know four children with perfect teeth and lots of letters on their varsity jackets or whatever you call that I guess it's interesting because <clears throat> my spouse and I are not wealthy by any stretch we both work in the nonprofit world Um, both of us uh, work in some kind of human services Uh, my spouse is a part-time very part-time yoga teacher and uh, a part-time yoga professor um, and uh, is also working on helping to build a nonprofit from the ground up with some friends and is not getting paid for that yet. One day, the hope is she will get paid for that, but she's not currently. COVID really kind of screwed things up for us in a lot of ways. I am a clinically trained chaplain, which means I am in mountains of debt and earning very little money to help people spiritually process the suffering that they experience in addiction. at least that's my context currently lots of training, lots of money for very little pay and so this cabin did not cost us very much money at all but the association that people from my hometown have with lake people is very much stuck in their brains I'm not sure exactly how that works maybe it's a survival thing And because of that, it gets stuck in my brain. Why am I sharing this with you today? Well, it leads me into the first precept. The five Buddhist precepts are the ethical North Star for Buddhist practitioners. Now, you'll notice that in Christianity, say, for example... We don't say Christian practitioner, we say Christian believer. Uh, Buddhism has nothing to do with belief, truly, um, but rather practice. This is why uh, a theist like me, raised in the Christian community, steeped in Christian theological training and education, can become a Zen Buddhist practitioner Uh, with some ease. Now, there's certainly been some sacrifices I've had to make because my beliefs have changed because of my practice. Remember, if you've listened to past episodes of the podcast, you know that in Buddhism, the practice gives birth to belief. And in most other world religions, belief comes first and gives birth to a practice. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved, and then you will want to follow the Lord Jesus all of your days, doing as the Lord Jesus asks, like visiting the incarcerated and the sick and uh, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, that kind of stuff. The five Buddhist precepts are not concerned with moralism as some religious traditions might be, as some fundamentalist traditions might be. The five Buddhist precepts are concerned with giving people five ethical practices to guide them in a way that is helpful and healing for them and all beings. Remember, spirituality is the connection we have with ourselves, others, and some kind of higher power. The five Buddhist precepts are five ethical practices or ethical foundations, which help maintain connection. They help strengthen the quality of connection, rather than weakening, or blocking, or cutting off connection, like some other things might. So in this regard, the five Buddhist precepts are a lot like the Eight Noble Truths, or the... no, I'm so sorry, my goodness, it is a Monday morning. The Noble Eightfold Path, which is a list of eight spiritual practices we can engage in that will help us um, end suffering, and the Four Noble Truths, which are the core or foundational truths of the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha. The Dharma, of course, is just reality, truth, things as they actually are not as we wish they would be or believe they would be, but as they actually are. Once we know this truth, it sets us free, so says Jesus. I say once we know this truth, it helps maintain connection. The first of the five Buddhist precepts is don't kill. Do not kill. It kind of finds its roots in verse 183 of the Dhammapada, which is a some Buddhist scripture. It's a collection of some sayings of the Buddha. And verse 183 of the Dhammapada goes like this. Do no harm. Practice virtue. Discipline the mind. These are the teachings of all the Buddhas. <clears throat> I am so sorry about all the throat clearing. It is just dry AF in here today. You'll notice after last episode of my podcast that I didn't say fuck. Oh, wait, now I have. Darn it. (laughs) Uh, I couldn't resist, sorry. Okay, so um, the, the... multiple Buddhas in this regard, right? Buddha is a word, a Sanskrit word, which means awakened one. That's all it means. There was the Buddha, which is sort of the chief Buddha that would be um, Siddhartha Gautama, the noble Nepali prince who becomes an aesthetic monk and then eventually becomes the awakened one, the enlightened one, the Buddha who gives rise to the a movement of practices and teachings, which eventually become what we know now as Buddhism. <clears throat> Many different Buddhist traditions believe that, there, that everybody can become a Buddha. Some, some Buddhist traditions even believe. And so practice this belief. that um there is only one buddha and no one can really achieve buddhahood until they achieve full awakening and enlightenment which some believe is impossible in this lifetime so there's some debate in the buddhist community about how that works but not debate in the sense that we might consider theological debate because i don't think people really give as much of a fuck. there we go again another fuck. That's three fucks now. Okay, four. Um, (laughs) um, People just don't care as much. We Buddhists don't care as much about debating belief because it's immaterial, ultimately. So how does the cabin, cottage, lake people story from New York and Minnesota connect to the first noble, the first uh, Buddhist precept, don't kill? When somebody becomes a Dharma teacher <clears throat> or a uh, you might hear about Zen centers or meditation centers having a guiding teacher, that would be the Dharma teacher. Some Dharma teachers are, are priests. They're ordained priests. Some are not. Um, it depends on the path that they've chosen. <clears throat> but if you become a priest or a Dharma teacher, you are required to take the five precepts. It's an, an oath, a vow that you take. Um, and the first of these is don't kill. Well, it seems self explanatory, kind of like in the Ten Commandments, like do not murder, right? Don't kill. So, you know, don't inflict violence on other living beings in such a way that you take their life from them. That would be a severing of connection. Spirituality and spiritual practice is all about maintaining that connection. So why the hell would you do that? Right? That seems obvious. But then it gets tricky. Don't kill. So does that mean um, don't step on any ants, even on accident? What if you accidentally step on a spider or a bee? Most of us Buddhists, if we see a spider or a bee or an ant, if we see it and we notice it, and then, then we can choose to not inflict violence on it. We have a choice then because we are, we are seeing the thing, the being, and we now have a connection to that being. Because of the interconnectedness of all beings, we see ourselves in the bee, in the ant, in the spider. And so we then find a way to maybe safely deliver the spider or the ant or the bee to the out-of-doors. If I don't notice the ant or the spider or the bee, then It's really not on me in a sense, but mindful living will give rise to noticing even the smallest ants and bees and spiders around us. People would say, you know, a lot of Buddhists are vegan or vegetarian because they don't believe that um, partaking in meat is honoring the first precept. However, I would challenge that just slightly. Um, For example, in some Tibetan Buddhist monasteries and other monasteries, if guests arrive who prepare food for the monks and it involves meat, even the vegan monks will eat the meat or be asked to eat the meat provided because it is a gift. And they did not kill the meat. So to not eat the meat is now wasting a gift, which can still nourish us. And to turn down the gift is to commit commit an act of violence toward connection, right? So my feelings of disdain and envy and bitterness and resentment and anger hatred even, frustration, annoyance toward the lake people, so to speak, of my youth was a form of violence. I didn't commit any physical acts of violence, but do you think, do you think that violence is reduced only to physical acts? We often, in our talks about violence, in our conversations about violence, reduce violence down to a set of physical actions, they are not just embodied physical actions. They are mental and emotional and spiritual acts as well. I commit mental, emotional, spiritual violence against my neighbor when I am full of hatred toward my neighbor, resentment, anger toward my neighbor, unforgiveness toward my neighbor, unkind thoughts toward my neighbor, right? This is all a form of violence. And as Jan Willis says, a professor of religion at Wesleyan University and the author of Dharma Matters, Women, Race and Tantra, uh, she says, but in a flash in our mind, we may have killed the person a hundred times over. Owing to our motivation, having thought violence is as much a violation of the precept against killing as having done it physically. The incredible speed of the mind is why it's so important to discipline our mind. If we can restrain our mind, we can cause less harm and perform more actions that are beneficial for all concerned. We step upon the Buddhist path in earnest when we acknowledge the killing and violence that happens in our minds and hearts every day, every moment. When I reduce somebody, even if I haven't physically slapped them or stabbed them or shot them, when I reduce somebody to a stereotype, or for example, and this one's going to be controversial, when Derek Chauvin, the Minneapolis police officer murdered George Floyd, there was a lot of anger directed toward Derek Chauvin, of course, by those of us who felt that George Floyd deserved to live, one and deserved justice. But immediately, I started to practice violence, mental violence, emotional violence, spiritual violence toward Derek Chauvin, because I believed that he deserved what George Floyd got but who am I to deal out death and judgment? I'm just a person. It's not in my hands. But what is in my hands, what remains within my choice, what remains on the path before me, is to decide how to conduct myself, how to approach my thought life. The more I acknowledge, become aware of my thoughts, and practice a new thought life, better it becomes. The less killing, the less violence I do. Take a deep breath with me. Hold for four counts. Three, two, one. Release out your mouth. All the way out. Do that a couple more times, okay? Take in a deep breath through your nose, hold for four counts, and release as much air as possible out of your mouth, as if you were blowing through a straw. And you can gently close your eyes now, or keep them open, but if you keep them open, maybe lower your gaze a little to the floor. Lower your shoulders a little, unclench your jaw, soften your neck, your chest, your stomach, your upper and lower back. Let your body become soft, and let the seat that you're in right now hold you. Unless you're driving, allow yourself to become fully relaxed and arrive to this moment. In an effort to engage with the first precept of the five Buddhist precepts and to connect with our ethical North Star, I invite you to repeat the phrases of the first precept quietly to yourself in your mind. May I do no harm today. May I practice virtue today. May I discipline the mind today. May I acknowledge my capacity for violence and harm today. May I choose the helpful healing practices associated with thoughts, emotions, body and spirit today so that I may maintain the connections I have with myself and all other beings. May I leave violence behind and move forward with acts of healing and kindness, compassion, and non-harm. May I be a being associated with non-violence today take a deep breath in release all of your gratitude yeah just release all that air cool good job thank you so much for um doing the work of listening to this podcast mindfully today and thinking about all the ways in which we can engage with the first precept. So my invitation to you today is to find ways to practice the do not kill, the first precept of the five Buddhist precepts. Remembering that killing is not reduced to physical acts of violence, but emotional mental, and spiritual acts of violence as well, towards ourselves and others. Be kind to you and be kind to your neighbor, whatever your neighbor is, whether an ant, a grasshopper, a blade of grass, or a human being. Thank you so much. I love you. You are enough exactly as you are. Take good care of you today, and I'll see you next week.